0: The, uh, the rumors have been buzzing about the congregation this past week, and I have to tell you that they're true. Uh, this morning we are going to study 11 chapters in the book of Isaiah. Yes, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapters 13 through chapter 23. We continue our study in the book of Isaiah this morning. So far, we've covered uh, the first 12 chapters. Uh, in chapters 1 through 5, we learned that God's people, they're, they're filled with sin and therefore they're, they're worthy of His judgment, and yet He is merciful. Chapter 6 recounts Isaiah's call to the prophetic ministry, essentially outlining his credentials, therefore giving his authority for delivering this message of judgment and hope. Chapters 7 through 12, the chapters we studied last week, taught us that God can be trusted even in the midst of the coming judgment. God can be trusted because He has a plan to redeem His people through the Emmanuel Child, through a Savior and King from the line of David. Now, one of the constant temptations that God's people face in the midst of, of hardship is the temptation to take refuge in people, in wealth, or in power, instead of God. And the purpose of these 11 chapters They hold together. The purpose of these 11 chapters, chapters 13 through 23, the purpose of these chapters in the book of Isaiah is to express that hope is found in God alone. God announces His judgment upon the nations of the known world, urging His people, the people of Judah, to put their hope in Him. That's what these chapters are all about. They're about God systematically eliminating the temptation to trust in other nations. And this dovetails beautifully with Isaiah's overarching message in his book, which is, God is salvation. That's also what his name means. If you haven't done so, I really encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 576. And while you're turning there, let me just remind you of uh, our passage in the context of, of, of the Bible and the book of Isaiah. We've already thought about it a little bit. But Isaiah's principal audience is 7th century Judah. But his message is not just for them. It is for the whole world. And that is on display in the passage that we're studying today. As we see the pride, and sin, and rebellion of Adam, which began first in the garden, reemerge in the peoples of the earth. Instead of trusting in God, like Adam should have, the peoples of the earth, including God's people... Israel and Judah, they trust in themselves, they trust in other nations, they trust in their wealth and their military might. Isaiah's message for Judah and for the whole world is that God's judgment against sin is coming and that he's the only hope of salvation. So if you wanted to boil down the message of Isaiah chapters 13 through 23 into a single sentence, that would be it. God's judgment against sin is coming and he is the only hope of salvation. And this morning, we're going to consider these 11 chapters under three headings. God against the world, God against His people, and God for His glory. Lord willing, there's a a bulletin uh, insert there that can help you follow along as we work our way through these 11 chapters. First, let's begin with our first point. God against the world. And as we do, let's just read one verse. Let's ease our way in, right? Verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 13 the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Here, we're told that God is giving Isaiah a divinely inspired vision concerning the nation of Babylon. This vision begins in chapter 13, and this vision actually extends to the end of chapter 14. It is the first oracle in a series of oracles concerning the 12 nations mentioned in these chapters. There should be like a little chart there in your bulletin. I hope you see these nations. Uh, Babylon, in fact, gets a shout-out a second time in chapter 21 of this uh, section of these chapters. You can see that there. Um, What we have in these chapters are a series of oracles of divine judgment against the greatest nations in the world known to Isaiah. In this first oracle, Babylon... Against Babylon, We're given a hint of what is actually to come with the rest of these oracles. While the Lord, through Isaiah, is speaking against the nation of Babylon, what we see is that at the same time, He has all of the nations in His field of vision. And I want you to see this right from the text itself. Uh, so, as, as we read just a few verses from chapter 13, consider how we begin with Babylon, but how also the field of vision expands to include the world. So, Move down to chapter 13, verse 6 there. And there we read, "'Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame.' Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low. The pompous pride of the ruthless. Verse 1, it tells us that the Lord plans to punish Babylon. But by the time you see we get to verse 11, we learn that the Lord also plans to punish the world. Uh, This is no surprise, as oracles against 11 other nations are coming after Babylon. You can see that as you just flip through the headings of these chapters. Concerning Babylon, we're told in verse 17 of chapter 13, that the Lord would stir up the Medes against them. With respect to the next nation, Assyria, we're told in chapter 14, verse 25, that the Lord will break them in his land. Philistia will face a famine and then face an enemy from the north. Chapter 14, verses 30 and 31. Moab will be laid waste in a single night. Chapter 15, verse 1. These are just some key verses as we're working through these chapters, Damascus, which is another name for Syria, become a heap of ruins. Chapter 17, verse 1. Cush will be devoured like birds of prey, and beasts of the field will devour the leftover carcasses and crops. Chapter 18, verse 6. Egypt is given uh, almost not surprisingly one of the longer oracles. It's been a, a, his, a, a historic enemy for God and His people. Egypt, they're told in 19, chapter 6, that the Nile will be dried up and that the king of Assyria will lead them away to exile naked and barefoot. It's chapter 20, verse 4. For Duma, it's another name for Edom, for Duma, the judgment would feel like a never-ending night. That's chapter 21, verses 11 and 12. Think of that punishment. The punishment lasting for what seems like a never-ending night. Those in Arabia will run and hide. They will flee from the sword and from the bent bow. Chapter 21, verse 15. Tyre and Sidon, the, the two major coastal cities, uh, receive the last of the judgment oracles in these chapters. They were, were will wail as they're laid waste. Chapter 23, verse 1. Indeed, news of their desolation, of Tyre's desolation, will actually echo across the Mediterranean Sea to the city of Tarshish. Judgment is coming... To the known world. That's what God promises these nations in these chapters. But don't you wonder why? Why is judgment coming? Well look no further than the verse we read just a few moments ago. Isaiah chapter 13 verse 11. Read Isaiah chapter 13 verse 11 again. I will punish the world for its evil. And the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant. And lay low the pompous Pride of the ruthless. This verse is is really characteristic of the attitude of the nations in these chapters. It's characteristic of the prideful attitude that's all too often found in our own hearts. Since Babylon is the first in this series of oracles, we see this pride in them and their king first. Let's take a look at the pride of Babylon. Flip over to chapter 14. You'll notice in verse 4 that the people of Israel, that they're to take up a taunt against the king of of Babylon. The idea is, of course, that that Babylon is brought low and Israel, God's people, uh, are to mock Babylon for its fall from power. And so this mocking uh, fills up almost the, the entire rest of the chapter. Pick up reading there in verse 11 of chapter 14. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and "'Worms are your covers. "'How you are fallen from heaven, O daystar, son of dawn. "'How you are cut down to the ground, "'you who laid the nations low. "'You said in your heart, "'I will ascend to the heavens above the stars of God. "'I will set my throne on high. "'I will sit on the mount of assembly "'in the far reaches of the north. "'I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. "'I will make myself like the Most High. "'But you are brought down to Sheol, "'to the far reaches of the pit.' Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a a desert and overthrew its cities? Who did not let his prisoners go home? See, Babylon has been laid low. And Israel is mocking Babylon and his king. Many have, I, I think mistakenly, understood this passage to be referring to Satan. And his fall. But I don't think that's quite what this passage is about. Isaiah told us in chapter 14 verse 4. That this is a taunt against the king of Babylon. Added to this we're reminded in verse 16. That this is a taunt directed toward a man. Who made the kingdoms of the earth tremble. And, and Babylon really did. As they were a powerful army. Marching through and conquering many nations. Some point to the language about Sheol and the heavens and say, "No, no, this is this must be about something much grander." But I think that's to forget that we're reading prophetic poetry and prose, which uses lofty language and imagery to communicate an earthly reality. It's true that Jesus picked up some of this language in his teaching, in the language of uh, Isaiah chapter 14. You can find some of it in Luke's gospel, particularly in Luke chapter 10. But I think if you read Luke chapter 10 carefully, you'll notice that Jesus is responding to the success that his disciples have had in their preaching ministry. They've successfully gone out and preached and cast out demons. And Jesus then uses this language from Isaiah 14 to describe what the arrival of the kingdom of God has done to Satan. The arrival of the kingdom of God has cast him down from his throne. The proclamation of the kingdom of God and the arrival of the king is what brings about Satan's defeat. It's what lays him low. What is said poetically here in Isaiah chapter 14, uh, said here of the pride of the king of Babylon, uh, is that he wanted to make himself like the Most High. That's really what many ancient kings said Uh, If you think particularly about the Roman Empire, emperors would claim for themselves to be gods. This is not a, a new thing in history that they were doing. It's been going on for a very, very long time. What's said about the king of Babylon here, really, couldn't it be said about Adam in the Garden of Eden? When Adam broke God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was pridefully attempting to steal the throne of the Most High. He wanted God's authority That's what sin is. That's what pride is. It is an attempt to displace God from His throne. John Stott once observed that pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is the essence of all sin. Do you recognize that about your sin? When we sin, we are attempting to dethrone God. Pride was found in Babylon. But it was also found in Moab. Turn over a couple of chapters to Isaiah chapter 16. You take a look there at verse 6. This is an oracle against Moab. Here we have a statement about Moab's pride. Isaiah chapter 16, verse 6. We have heard of the pride of Moab. How proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence, and his idle boasting. He is not right. Pride uh, even turns up in the last nation mentioned in these chapters. Uh, flip ahead to Tyre, to Isaiah chapter 23. Pride turns up here in this major coastal city, this port city. Isaiah chapter 23, verse 8. Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored ones of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. So you see from these chapters, one of the things we're learning is that from beginning to end, the world is filled with pride. From the first nation in these chapters, Babylon, to the last nation in these chapters, Tyre, the world is filled with pride. From a nation in the east, Tyre, to a nation in the west, Babylon, all the nations are filled with pride. And I don't know if you you noticed this In our reading from earlier in the service, uh, from Revelation chapter 18. But when the Apostle John picks up this language from Isaiah 14 in his vision, he refers to Babylon by name. But particularly toward the end of that uh, statement there in Revelation 18, he actually uses imagery related to Tyre. He talks about ships and coastal cities and port cities and all the pride Founded in there. It's as if John is actually paying tribute to the whole of these chapters, from Isaiah chapter 13 to 23, saying the, the whole world is filled with pride and the whole world will fall at the return of Jesus Christ, just like Babylon fell. Isaiah chapter 23, verse 9, tells us that the Lord has purposed to put an end to this pride. When God purposes to punish the proud, they cannot escape. His punishment. There is no escaping His punishment. And no one can cancel it. Or annul it. Or turn back God's saying, That's what the Lord tells us in Isaiah chapter 14. So go back toward the beginning. Isaiah chapter 14. Let's take a look at verses 24 to 27. Where the Lord is essentially telling us. You're not going to stop me. When I bring these plans about. Chapter uh, 14 verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn... As I have planned it, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountain, trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? The answer, of course, is no one. When the Lord has purpose to oppose the proud, no one can oppose him. Here is another reason that God's people ought to take, uh, they they ought not to take refuge in the nations. And it's another reason why God's people ought to be humble before him. If we are honest with ourselves, we will admit that we're all proud. Uh, If you don't admit that you're proud, you're proud. Uh, You know, pride turns up in our most innocent thoughts, in our most innermost thoughts. I'm glad I'm not like him. It's not so innocent, is it? Ah, to be young and foolish. It, It turns up when we exalt ourselves and hold others in contempt. Pride turns up in our attitudes. We bristle when a mature Christian gently encourages us to study a particular passage of Scripture because they see something that needs growth in our life. And we think, ah, no thanks. Sometimes as if we have nothing to learn from them. When was the last time you asked a mature Christian, what do you see in my life? What do you think I should be studying from God's Word for my my growth in godliness? Pride, it seemed quite clearly in our prayerlessness. An absence of prayer, doesn't that reveal a prideful self-sufficiency as though we have no needs? Pride turns up when we find fault in others, but none in ourselves. Pride rears its head when we're harsh and irritated with others. Uh, Pride makes an appearance when others are harsh with us and, and we get easily offended. Defending ourselves is a sure sign of pride. So is seeking out praise. Uh, Pride rears its head when we honor those who can honor us because pride is all about ascending up to heaven and sitting on God's throne. There are, are more sins, really, which emerge in these chapters. Sins which arouse God's anger against the nation's they mainly fall really into two categories, I think. First is the sin of false worship, and the second is the sin of false hope. It's not surprising that the one true God uh, condemns the worship of false gods at, at these various altars throughout these nations. He condemns idolatry and the use of mediums and sorcerers and necromancers. These condemnations appear in chapter 17, verses 7 through 9, chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 21. Verses 1 through 9. These condemnations are, are certainly in line with the ethical force of the first two of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and before no idol, bow thy knee. The, the other group, the grouping of sins found in these chapters is that of false hope. We, uh, we find, uh, what we find in these chapters is that over and over again, the nations are trusting in their military might and power. They are either trusting in their own weaponry, or they are trusting in the, the military strength of another nation. This is portrayed vividly in chapter 20. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 20. Let's uh, begin reading in, in verse 1. This short chapter. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, go. And loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and importance against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles Both young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastal coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and those to whom we fled to help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? You see what's being communicated here? A people had trusted in the power and military might of Egypt and Cush only to see Egypt and Cush sacked by the mighty Assyrian army. Egypt and Cush were embarrassingly led away into captivity and this nation's false hope was then exposed. This is what the Lord does to those who put their hope in something and someone other than Him. This is part of what God's message was to Judah. Don't put your hope in other nations. They will fail you. God is your salvation. God. You see, He exposes our false hopes and shows us how futile our faith in them is. What are you trusting in? If it is not in God and His Son, Jesus Christ, He will expose its futility and impotence. I don't know if you realize this, but our anxiousness, will very often expose what we're trusting in. Uh, Too often we're anxious because what we're finding is that those people or those things that we're trusting in aren't strong enough to bear the weight of our hopes. There is only one person in this world who is strong enough to bear the weight of your hopes, and his name is Jesus. Also, while our anxiousness sometimes reveals that we are hoping in the wrong things and in the wrong people, it also sometimes reveals that we're hoping for the wrong things. If you are the least bit anxious about the present political cycle, what does that say about where your hope lies and what you're hoping for? You know, this past week I had a neighbor come up to me uh, distraught about this present political cycle. What a profound opportunity to express confidence and joy in the sovereignty of God. He's got the whole world in His hands. He has had the world in His hands for quite some time, and He's going to continue to have the world in His hands until the end of time. We have nothing to fear. God's perfect love toward us in Jesus Christ ought to cast out all of our fears. As the Apostle John reminds us in 1 John chapter 4, 18, He is our hope. In these chapters, we have come to see that God is against the nations for their pride, for their false worship and their false hope. He's against the nations for their sin. In these chapters, God even expresses His displeasure toward His people. In that list of nations provided there in your your bulletin, you'll notice that Israel and Judah occupy the 6th and 11th places in that list of nations. They're, They're buried right in the midst of these nations. And this tells us that just as God's anger is directed against the nations for their sin, so also is His anger directed against His people for their sin. And this is the second point that we want to consider together this morning. God against His people. And as we begin to think through this, turn over to Isaiah chapter 17. Isaiah chapter 17, that's page 580 of the Bibles provided. Let's begin with the people of Israel. Uh, as, you, as you may recall from Old Testament history, uh, the kingdom of Israel uh, split in two. It was originally one nation, uh, but it split in two as a result of the sins of God's people, the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. And God addresses both of those kingdoms in these chapters. God's people, they were, they were meant to be one, but sin split them apart. Israel and Judah, they actually lived for a considerable time as separate and distinct nations. They lived with two distinct kings, two distinct foreign policies, and uh, it was the northern kingdom of Israel's foreign policy, really their alliance with Syria. They had formed an alliance with Syria against the southern kingdom of Judah, and it was that alliance that would actually bring them down. It would bring about their destruction. Israel, it's also known as Ephraim, in these chapters, was so intertwined with Syria that its oracle. ...of judgment is really of one cloth. While God is uh, speaking an oracle of judgment against Syria... ...he is at the same time speaking an oracle of judgment against Israel. Uh, In other words, because Ephraim and Damascus formed an alliance against Judah... ...God held them together in his judgment. So let's read there Isaiah chapter 17 verse 1. An oracle against Damascus. That's a reference to Syria. An oracle against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins... The cities of Aroer are deserted. they will be for flocks, which will lie down, and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim it's a reference to the northern kingdom, from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. Damascus was the capital city of Syria. And Isaiah tells us that it will be so utterly destroyed. It would really cease to be a city. You can have kind of livestock just grazing in there. And there's no one there. So nobody's going to disturb them. Nobody's going to make them afraid. They're going to be free to graze. There's nobody to watch over them. Instead of being a, a flourishing nation, a flourishing city, it will be left with so few people. Like in Ember, which was once a part of a great blazing fire. Only a small remnant of serious former glory would remain. In verse 3, Isaiah then turns to address Ephraim. It's one of the names that Isaiah used to refer to the northern kingdom of Israel. And as you can tell from verse 4, so was Jacob. That's also a name that he used. Jacob's name, as you recall, from Genesis 32, was changed uh, changed to Israel after Jacob held on to the Lord all night. Ironically, It was because the nation of Israel held on to someone other than God, Damascus, that they would be brought down with Damascus. We see the punishment that God's people will face as a result of their unbelief there in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 17. Uh, Read verse 9. In that day their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops which they deserted because of the children of Israel and there will be desolation For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on that day, on the day that you plant them, and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Israel you see, had trusted in the strength of another nation instead of taking refuge in God. Israel had forgotten their God, that He is their God of salvation. Instead of having no other gods before the one true God, they worshipped at the altars of false gods. You see that in verse 8. They had bowed their knees before idols and ashram poles. And so Israel would be rebuked and be made to flee away. And in 722 BC, they would be carried off into exile by the Assyrian army, just like the Egyptians and the Cushites were carried off by Assyria. In reading those verses, I was, I was set to wonder, have we forgotten God? What alliances have we made? Who or what have we bound ourselves to, clinging to in hope? And what do we worship as the work of our own hands? It was Israel, Ephraim's allegiance to Damascus that aroused the Lord's indignation. But God wasn't just against Israel. His indignation was also aimed at Judah, the southern kingdom, where God positively stretched out His hand against Israel in punishment. He removes His protective covering from Judah so that they endure His punishment. That's what we learn in chapter 22. If you flip ahead to chapter 22. We see here that God had long protected Judah, from the onslaught of the enemy. But in the days ahead, God would remove His protective covering. And when He did, what would Judah do? Who would they look to for help? Would they forget God like Israel did? Or would they remember that He is their rock of refuge? As we read Isaiah chapter 22, verses 8 to 14, keep in mind, keep in the back of your mind, where the nations and Israel had placed their hope. And ask yourselves, was Judah any different? Isaiah chapter 22, verse 8. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls and for the water, the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it Or see him who planned it long ago. In that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness. Killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. In the day that God removed Judah's covering, they turned and they looked for weapons. They turned to the forest. They turned to their to fortify their defenses, they turned and took refuge in their own resources. They did not look to God for refuge. Perhaps they even rationalized their turning to their own resources as taking refuge in God. Perhaps they thought to themselves, you know, uh, the, the Lord, he's, he's really given me all of these things and this is His means of protecting me. Let us not be so naive. Our Lord never means for our bank accounts to be our security. Our Lord never means for the laws of the land, laws of religious liberty, to be that which guarantees our protection. Our Lord never means for us to place our hope in a court, a congress, or a president. Our Lord never means for us to take refuge in our careers or in our relationships. None of these things will ultimately satisfy us, and none of these things will finally save us. Our God calls us to put our hope in Him. He may, in His providence, choose to use some of those things. He may choose to remove them. Whatever He may choose to do, we ought always to turn to Him for refuge and strength. At the same time, we ought to turn from our sin. God called for repentance from His people. I wonder if you notice that here. That's what the weeping and mourning and baldness and sackcloth refer to in verse 12. Those are images of a people ashamed at their sin and self-reliance. Instead of a people filled with sorrow and shame and repentance, what did the Lord find? Verse 13 tells us that he found a people filled with joy and gladness. He found a people filling up on the pleasures of the flesh, saying, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He found a people who were forsaking reality. He found a people trying to escape reality. Judah, like Israel, and like the nations, would be made to face reality. On the last day, We will all be made to face reality. And the question is, have our sins been atoned for in Jesus Christ? And this is the good news of the Bible. Atonement for repenting sinners has been made by Jesus Christ. God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to save the world from the punishment that's due to their sins. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus lived the perfect, righteous, and sinless life, He was the perfect, righteous, and sinless sacrifice, atonement for sinners. Jesus' death on the cross was the sacrificial atonement which would deal with sin once and for all. And to assure us that God the Father received the just payment, that He received the atonement that was due to our sins, to assure us that Jesus' death makes us at one with God the Father. Three days after His death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Friend, if you are here this morning, if you're not a believer, follower of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to come to Him in repentance and faith. Confess to God in your heart that you are full of sin and that in pride you have tried to take His throne. We all have tried to do that. (laughs) Confess now that your only hope is in Him and in His Son, Jesus Christ. Believe that when Jesus died on the cross, God's wrath against your sin was satisfied. Believe that God raised Him from the grave so that you might have peace with God and so be forever welcomed into His presence. This is the good news of the Bible. And if you want to know more about this good news, please find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. What we also see in these chapters is that while God is against sin, He is also for His people. Surprisingly, God is not just for Israel and Judah, but the nations as a whole. His people included more than just Israel and Judah. Previous chapters in Isaiah had already hinted at that, the promised Emmanuel child of chapter 7 is the Davidic king of chapter 9 who would stand as a signal for all peoples, we read in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. And as we learned from our study last week, the New Testament confirms that this messianic figure is none other than Jesus Christ. Even in these chapters, where God is depicted as being against these nations, against the world and against His people, what we also learn is that He is for His glory. And that what this means is that these nations come to love Him and to worship Him. So let's turn now and see that in these chapters as we consider our third point. God is for His glory. Just a moment ago, go ahead and turn back to chapter 14. Just a a moment ago, we thought about how God was against the people of Israel. So we, we see and remember in chapter 14, God is uh, also for His people. Consider how God expresses His love for His people uh, in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel possessed them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. You know, so chapter 13 declared that Babylon would fall. And here we're learning that it had to take place so that the Lord could reveal His compassion and choice of His people yet again. In history, uh, Babylon would eventually be defeated by the Persians. And this would allow the people of Israel to return home to Canaan. This set the stage then for the coming of Jesus Christ. God chose Israel to be the people and the place where His worldwide purposes of redemption would be made known. Even in judgment, God was for His glory and for the good of sinners. The two are really intermingled. God's glory and the good of sinners They're in harmony. We see this at the end of chapter 14. If you skip ahead to verse 32. Take a look at verse 32. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion. And in her the afflicted of his peoples find refuge. Now this is remarkable because it comes on the heels. Of oracles against Assyria and against Philistia. When. Nations of the earth come looking for aid. What will they be told? They will be told that refuge is found in God and in His city. The afflicted can find rest in God and in His city. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was also called Zion. It's a place of refuge and rest because God's temple was there. In the New Testament, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus fulfilled all all of God's purposes for the temple. So now we may go not to a city on earth, but to him who is the king of the earth. Where can the afflicted and the weary find refuge today? In Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You do not have to be from Israel or Judah. You can be from Assyria or Arlington or Alexandria. You can be from Philistia and from Fairfax all are welcome to come to Jesus Christ in faith and find refuge from the judgment of God. Just as previous passages in Isaiah have looked forward to the establishment of the throne of the Messianic King of of David's throne, so we have glimpses of that in these chapters too. Uh, Consider Isaiah chapter 16. Skip ahead to Isaiah chapter 16. Take a look at verse 3. What we discover here is that in the face of their troubles, Moab... Uh, They're looking for refuge in the city of Zion, in Jerusalem. They're looking for refuge. Consider what Moab says to Jerusalem. Begin there, Isaiah chapter 16, verse 3. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Do you see what the once prideful people of Moab are asking of Judah and of the city of Jerusalem in particular? They're asking to take refuge in Zion just as Isaiah chapter 14, 32 suggested for those who are afflicted. What we learn in these verses is that hope is not merely located in a city, but in a coming Davidic king who will have a throne established in steadfast love. Moab must put their hope in Judah's hope, the king who was promised in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of His government and of His peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The peoples of the earth who put their hope in God and in His King will not be put to shame. That is how God is glorified, by people turning to Him and worshipping Him. And this will happen with the nations of Cush, and Tyre on a future day. Uh, take a look at Isaiah chapter 18, verse 7. We read this about Cush. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. Again, Looking for, forward toward a future day, Isaiah says this about the people of Tyre. Take a look uh, at Isaiah chapter 23, verse 18, the last verse in, this, in these chapters. Her merchandise, this is of Tyre, her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or honored, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. See, Tyre used to be a stingy, greedy people, but God will transform them. They will offer their wealth in service of Him. And as we think about the tribute and wealth that Cush and Tyre bring to the Lord in the future, our minds, I think, should be running to the end of the Bible, particularly to Revelation 21, where we're told of the glory and worship that the Lord receives in the new heavens and the new earth. As, as I, I read from Revelation 21, verses 23 to 26, keep in mind the tribute and wealth that Cush and Tyre are said to bring to the Lord on that future day. John writes in Revelation 21, beginning verses 23 26, and this city, here he's speaking of the heavenly city of Zion, and this city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Isaiah, I think, is talking about that day in Revelation 21. He's pointing our eyes toward that coming future day when not just Israel, but the nations of the earth worship God in His glory. Perhaps the most amazing picture of God acting for His glory and the good of the earth in these chapters is found in chapter 19. Turn to Isaiah chapter 19. What we're about to read is a prophetic picture of Israel, Egypt, and Assyria. All worshipping the one true God. And frankly it's a shocking picture. Israel and Egypt were historic enemies. With Egypt having enslaved Israel. Assyria and Israel were enemies as Assyria Assyria endeavored to take over Israel and eventually did take over Israel and carried them off to exile. And the same would be true as later Assyria would carry Egypt off to exile. And though there has been a ton of judgment in these chapters, what I hope you're learning is that God's judgment was never meant to wipe out the nations and His people. God's judgment has been aimed at showing the nations and His people that salvation is found in Him and that He alone is worthy of worship. Let's read Isaiah chapter 19. Begin there in verse 19. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, He will send them a Savior and Defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord. And He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Do you see what Isaiah is prophesying here? He's telling us that Jews and Gentiles will worship the one true God. Verse 25 is just astounding. He calls Egypt, Egypt my people. Egypt the people whom he crushed in the walls of the Red Sea. He calls Assyria the work of my hands and Israel my inheritance. All of these nations, notice that, belong to the Lord. They are mine. And as we conclude, I want us to have a clear grasp of what's being depicted here. Gentile nations are being grafted into the people of God. Doesn't it sound like the fulfillment of this vision will be the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham? Doesn't it sound like what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 10 to 16? There Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, that's what he said of Assyria, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant, of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far have been brought near By the blood of Christ. You've been made His. For He Himself is our peace. Who has made us both one. And has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That He might create in Himself one new man. In the place of two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God. In one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. Egypt, and Assyria, and Israel, hostility was killed between them as they were made God's people, as they were made His. Egypt, Assyria, and Israel are no longer enemies, nations at war, but nations at worship. This has begun in and through the ministry and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel has advanced to these nations and continues to advance around the world. And the gospel will continue to advance until Jesus returns. And the people of God sing the song of the Lamb together. Listen as I read this song that we will all one day sing with the nations of the earth. Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Praise God that he is for his glory in bringing the nations to himself. Let's pray together.